right, good morning again. I feel like the exit of the kids takes longer every week. We're praying for you, Stephen. Um, I, I got I to gotta admit something. That last song wasn't there. And last time we did that song, I messed it up. And so Hillary, when she got here this morning, she's like, hey, we're doing the one that we messed up. So I went in. I imported the correct one, and then I drug the wrong one into the playlist. So my fault. That's twice. It's not that I don't like the song. I just, I don't know. So um, forgive me on that. Um, a, a few things just before we get started. One, if you haven't downloaded the app, we have um, an app for Watershed. I tell you that now because it has sermon notes on there if you like to fill in blanks. Um, but I always put the disclaimer. There's sometimes that I forget what blanks that I've put or I change something. So it's not an exact replica usually. Um, apparently you can tell by the song I'm fond to forget stuff that I've written. And so, but it's a good guide that you can go back to. And it also has discussion questions for our community groups on there as well. Um, and then um, other than that, I think we are good. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Romans chapter one. We are in the, the early stages of our series through Romans, and I, I should say series, because there's, there's going to be a couple. There's going to be five multiple series within the book of Romans. We thought it would be easier um, to divide that up, because Romans is divided up naturally into five categories, and so that's where we're going through as a church, and I've said it'll take us a while, um, about 47 weeks if we don't slow down at some times. Um, because just Romans at times bears that you slow down. Um, today, though, is not one of those days. We're going to cover a lot of ground. Um, so if you will, follow along. We'll get right into it. And um, we're going to read Romans chapter 1, verse 18, through the end of the chapter, verse 30. Or actually, sorry, not the end of the chapter, just verse 32. Yes, that's the end of the chapter. All right, sorry. All right, here we go. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have, clearly, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity and to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worship and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed for every man. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed by passions for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree 
that those who practice such things deserve to die. They do not do them, but give approval. Not only do they do them, they give approval to those who practice them. If you will, pray with me as we get started in this. Father God, we just come to you now, and we just pray that as we open your word, it would shape us. God, that your truth would be evident to us, God, that it would captivate our hearts, God, that it would pierce us as only your truth can. God, we thank you for giving us your revelation, showing us who you are through your words that you've inspired Paul to write here. And we just pray that we'd be submissive to your spirit. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as we're looking at this, we can see that, it, just to kind of catch you up, because we need to be caught up, last week we talked about the gospel. It was the good news, right? It's the exciting, it's the power of God for salvation. It's, and, and what we saw in that is that it's God's power, it not contains God's power, it is God's power, but it was also God's power at work for the salvation of all who believe. And so we see that it wasn't just God's power. It had a purpose behind his power. It was for salvation. And we saw also that God's righteousness had been revealed. And when we looked at that righteousness revealed, we saw that when we look at God's righteousness, that immediately shows us who we are in comparison. And so what that does, when we look at the righteousness, we look at the separation, it leads us to repentance and faith. It should lead us to repent of our understanding of who we are and realizing that God is so righteous, there's no way we compare, and that drives us to repentance and faith. And so that was, that was last week. That's the good news, and this week we get to talk about God's wrath, right? It's not the subject that everyone wants, and so when we look at this idea that God's wrath revealed, it's something that, that you might not have picked. Like, if this is your first time here, we don't just talk about the wrath all the time, but you got a good passage, all right? And I say that because we so often forget to speak of God's wrath actually leads us then also to repentance and faith. Because we understand that. Leon Morris, talking about this idea of God's righteousness, says that unless there's something to be saved from, there's no point in talking about salvation. And that's what we need to understand when we look at God's wrath, that if there's nothing to be saved from, then what's the point of salvation? What's, what's the point of salvation if we can't realize and acknowledge that there's something to be saved from. But when we look at that idea and we look at this passage today, we realize that it's not sin that we need to be saved from. It's actually God. It's God's wrath that we're saved from. We're not saved from sin. We're saved from the penalty of that sin, his wrath being poured out on all ungodliness. And if you look at that, verse 18, Paul kind of connects this thought when he says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And when we realize that, just before we get down into the, the, the details of that, we see that all people are there. That his wrath has been poured out against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So it includes everyone in that. You look at this a little further, we see in, in Romans 3.10, Paul says that, that no one is righteous, no, not one. He's actually quoting Psalms 44, 1 through 3. If you want to look that up later, you can make a note. That's where Paul's bringing that Old Testament idea in there. But what we have to understand is that there's all people are ungodly and unrighteous, and therefore the wrath of God is poured out on all people. And that then drives us to this idea of salvation. So really, 18, verse 18, and, and the rest of the chapter gives 16 and 17 its power. 
Because if there wasn't for 18 through the end of the chapter and this unrighteousness and the, the sin and the rebellion by people, then the salvation of God's not needed. So 16 and 17 aren't as impactful without this. And so when we look at this idea of sin, and we see a pattern happening in the rest of the chapter. And we're going to look at that chapter a little bit each as we go. And we're going to look at that pattern that we see. Namely, it's of revelation. And then rebellion follows revelation. And then God's response always follows the rebellion. And so we're going to look at all aspects of that. We're going to kind of look back and forth. And I might not turn there, but we're going to mention a lot of stuff. So if you like to highlight, this is a good day for that. If you like to make notes, then it's okay to write in your Bible. It's all right to do that. So you can remember later or if you're taking notes for the app. So the first thing we want to look at is the revelation of God. Because if people are under this wrath of God, then why? Right? And, that is, and you might have got that question before. You might have got that question, well, how can a loving God? Because as Christians, we say that God is loving, right? that God is love, that we love because he first loved us. And so the, the argument then posed to people most of the time, if you're talking to them about the gospel, they say, well, how can a loving God condemn people that have never heard the gospel? How can, how can he be a loving God if he's going to condemn people that have never heard the gospel? Right? You might have heard people say it the other way, that actually it, it, you, you get some that explain it to where it's actually better not to tell people the gospel because then they're accountable to the truth they have. Maybe you've heard it that way, but really that's just a lack of love for people, right? You're not going to tell them the one thing that can save them, right? It's the power of God for salvation, but don't tell them that because they'll be better off. And we have people that say that and believe, and it's just sad but when we look at this, we realize that how can a loving God condemn people who have never heard? Because they've seen him. He's been revealed to them. And that's what Paul gets at when we look at verses 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them. So how is God revealed first? It's plain. It's just there. It's easy to see. It's been shown to man. That's what verse 19 is saying. That what can be known about God is plain to them. So here are these people those that are unrighteous men and in their wickedness or the unrighteous, they suppress the truth. The truth that they suppress is what Paul's talking about in verse 19. That what has been known or can be known has been plainly revealed. So there's truth that's revealed plainly to them, but we also see that, that God's revealed clearly. If you keep reading in verse 20, we see exactly what is clearly perceived invisible attributes, his power and divine nature. And that's what we need to focus on. A lot of times we think, oh, it's plain and it's clear, but then we forget to ask what? What about God is revealed in nature? And that's what Paul says there in the first part of verse 20. It's his invisible attributes. So it's his power and his divine nature is what is revealed. And so when we get to that point, we're not talking about this gospel revelation. We're talking about just revelation in nature. And so a, a way to maybe understand this a little better is to say that nature reveals God's nature. That when we look at nature, we see God's nature because we see his power and his divine nature clearly and plainly revealed in creation. And so you have to ask yourself then, do you see God in creation? Do you, do you walk out and you see this morning, I, I was going to get the donuts and I have to go over the big hill over here, and it was a beautiful sunset this morning, or sunrise, excuse me. Right, it's just pink, and it's just one of those pictures, and it's like, what an amazing sunset that I get to see on the day when I get to say that God's revealed in nature, that his power. And so we need to understand that, that God's truth 
reveals him, that creation reveals who he is. And so that's why a loving God can then condemn those who have never heard the gospel because there's been enough revelation to understand who he is because his power and his nature are revealed by his creation. We have to understand that when we look at the revelation of God. We need to stop thinking about the, the, the condemnation comes after a true gospel representation and turning, no, it's anyone is without excuse because that's what he says, right? It's been clearly perceived since the creation of the world. So the creation, when God spoke creation into being, at that point, everyone that then was part of creation, all the people from that point have clearly perceived and plainly seen seen what has been revealed about God because of creation. So they're without excuse. And we look at that, that, that could kind of shock you a little bit, but what it does in reality is it shows us how powerful and amazing God is. And if you look at nature, if you look at the world around us, and granted, it's, sometimes it's easier if you live in the mountains, right? We, 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 were in Pike, we were up on Pikes Peak last year in the summer, and you're up there so high, and you just see, and you're like, wait a second, this is nothing compared to God. It's a little easier to see how small we are when you're on top of this giant peak. You're looking down, there, and the, the people on the train riding up are like, yeah, you can see Kansas. And I'm like, this thing about creation shows that power. The power of the waves crashing on the ocean, as beautiful it is, it shows this power that God just spoke. He spoke that. Remember, we talked about this. It's his word that creates. And so how powerful and amazing is God that he can speak in this world that we can only hope to live within. And you see the destructive forces of the earth, the power of the world. He spoke this and it reveals his truth. And so ask yourself, how many times do you stop in the mornings and you just look at creation and think, what an amazing, powerful God we have. Right? You can look at that and see that God has been revealed to us just in creation. But then we can take it a step further and say that yes, you can say that people are then accountable to the, the level of truth that's been revealed. They're already condemned, but as you know more about God, as you start to understand more about who he is, then you're accountable for that truth as well. And so we have to realize, we have to go back to this idea that the revelation of God is enough to condemn people just in nature, but it's also enough to where we should have to realize that we're accountable to that truth, that we're not without excuse, that we have this, we're condemned by it. But what happens, as you see naturally, is the, the next phase of this, and Nikki, you're going to have to go for me because my thing turned off. Um, but the next phase of this is we see the rebellion of man, right? We see this idea that nature is revealing God's power in nature that is plainly and clearly perceived to all people who suppress the truth because of their wickedness. And that suppression of the truth leaves them without excuse, but it shows an act of rebellion of God. And if you look at verse 21, we see this. For although they knew God, and again, they're not talking, this is not saving revelation, this is not the gospel message. This is just creation. Creation revealed plainly and clearly, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And that's where we see this idea of rebellion happen in verse 21, that they knew God, but they did not honor him as God. 
It's knowing who he is and choosing to honor him as that. And so when we look at that, we can define sin. If, you wanna, if you've ever tried to define sin, it's kind of hard. Here's an easy way that, that I think gives us a good picture of it is that sin is any act of rebellion against God. And so that sets us up with a difference between sin and sins. Because sin is an act of rebellion. Sins are the visual, the visual expression of that rebellion. And so when we get to the list at the end, those lists aren't sin. They're sins that are expression of the act of rebellion of being in sin. And when we look at this idea of rebellion, we realize that it happens because of our heart's affections. In verse 23, we see this first. And actually, before we get into there, there's a pattern that happens the rest of the chapter. It happens three times. The exact same thing happens. There's rebellion and there's a God's response. And so we'll look at those in conjunction with each other. But 23 is where we get the first idea of what rebellion of, of God looks like, the sin. And it's, it, he exchanged what? They exchanged the glory of God, of the immortal God, for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. And so when we look at that, we, we realize that what Paul is talking about is idolatry. That they changed and exchange the glory of the immortal God for the mortal things. And rebellion always happens when the affections of our hearts change. When our affections of our hearts are taken from the immortal glory of God and given to things, then that's an act leading to rebellion. And you're completely consumed by that. So what does Paul say? What, well, we can look at this passage and see that idolatry is. One, we can see that it's always stupid, right? Claiming to be wise, they became fools. That, that idolatry is just stupidity. In action, right? We see this idea. We also see that it's willful because over and over again we see that they exchanged in verse 23 and exchanged the glory of God. Verse 25, because they exchanged the truth. And in verse 26, they exchanged natural relations. It's a willful act of stupidity that is idolatry. We also see some realities of this, and we'll look at that in a little closer. Look at verse 23 again. We're just there. They exchanged the glory of God for immortal, of the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. And when we look at that, that's kind of this idea that that's, that gets into the stupidity part of idolatry, right? Why would you change the, it's, it's really immortality getting pushed aside for mortality, right? Like, let's not worship God. Let's worship these things that resemble us or birds or creeping things, right? And, and you look at that, and if you're honest, you think that's just stupidity, right? It just doesn't make sense why you would ch exchange the worship of the glory of an immortal God for something that was mortal, right? It doesn't make sense. You can't wrap your, around, your mind around that idea and think, well, that's not crazy. It's crazy, if you want to, the Bible talks about that again. If you want to go to Isaiah 44 at some point, look at Isaiah 44, 9 through 20. And there's a perfect description of why idolatry is stupid because it shows how they use wood and other, other different aspects and then they use it in worship. So it's like you burnt, you, you heated your house with it so it was good enough for that and now all of a sudden you're going to worship but it's the exact same stuff. And so Isaiah is showing you that it's just stupidity, right? And if we look at that, it makes sense. The mortals worship, the immortals pushed aside. There's no way you can look at that and think that, well, that's not crazy. 
Right? But, but so often we see that happening, right? So often we, we see ourselves exchanging the glory of God for things that are here that are going to go away. And they can't do that. It's just stupidity. But if we go further, we also see that not only is idolatry stupid, it's complete. There's this total captivation by it. Look at verse 25. When they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature, rather than a creator. So now it takes it a step further. It's not only seeing that, but now there's this total commitment to it. There's a worship, and then they're serving, right? How many, how many churches right now are, are dying because people won't serve the church, but they're serving their idols that they've created in their life? Because you can't be halfway committed to idolatry. You're either gonna serve God, or you're gonna serve something else. There's not this halfway aspect of it. It's a complete, total thing, and it's a lie, when you see that, when it says for a lie, the idolatry is the lie. It's not lies. It's just worshiping something else. That's the lie that Paul's talking about. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and served. Completely committed to that. And think about, if you don't, if you don't want to, I'll give you a break for a second. Don't think about yourself. Think about a family member you know that's caught up into this. And you're like, why in the world are you so totally committed to that thing when you can clearly see the stupidity around it yet they're sold out for it right we can see that if we think about it we can see examples of this and and then when you think about that think that realize that there's other people that are thinking that about you and other things that you do right that there's things that you're completely sold out for why because you're exchanging the truth of god for a lie and you're worshiping the creature the things created rather than the one that created them and there's no way to say that that's not crazy, but you can completely understand that it's a total captivation of your heart when you're given over to that. And then we see, ultimately, that it's also visible. It's stupid, it's complete, and it's visible. All right, look at verse 27. Well, we'll go 28 first. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what they ought not, to do what ought not to be done. Right? In verse 26, he gave them dishonorable passions. And what we, we see in both of those verses and those descriptions, one, we can, verse 26 on is kind of a separate list. We'll get at that in a second. But what we see in there is that idolatry is visible. It's seen. It's, it's shown to the world through your actions. Right? If you're going to worship and serve something, people notice. And so think about that the next time you're, you're captivated by something that's not God. Because people will notice, right? People see that and they, they realize and, and they're thinking, that is so stupid. Like why in the world would we be captivated by that when we see the truth of God just revealed in nature, right? Why do we have so many people that think that God can't be so powerful and so sovereign in the universe and look at creation and think that his word just created that, right? It's ridiculous, isn't it? But what you do is visible. Again, Leon Morris rightly says that it's impossible to have a general attitude of unrighteousness without its finding expression in deeds opposed to God's purposes. So you can't have this general idea of unrighteousness. You can't have this aspect of idolatry being completely over worshiping, serving it without it expressing itself in your life. And you can, it's, it's clear to see that if we're willing to go there. If you're willing to look at your life and think, well, wait a second. Am I really doing that? You can see that it does work its way out. 
And so what are you willfully exchanging the truth for a lie? The biggest, the way I see this is, um, in, in our culture to me, is our identity. On one side, we have females that are told you have to act a certain way, you have to look a certain way, you have to dress a certain way for you to have worth and value. And everything that we see in any sort of media realm says, this is what you should strive to be. If you're not doing this, then you're not good enough. If you're not providing for your family, if you're not staying at home, if you're not just teaching your children everything, then you're not worth it. And so what we do is we start exchanging the truth about who we are, about your identity being rooted in Christ first, and you exchange it for all these little categories that culture says this is what a proper lady looks like. This is what a a good mother is. This is what an amazing wife is. And so we exchange the truth about who you are. You You have this idea that culture says that you should exchange the truth about who you are, rooted in Christ, secure in him, as he's created and gifted you, and instead, do all these things. Do all these things, dress this way, pursue these things, and then you'll be great. And if you have Facebook, you see that. That's why I, I, love, I have this love and hate relationship with Facebook. I hate it because there's so much stuff that's telling us, but I love it because it's so clearly to say, look at Facebook, and you can see all those ways. You can see all those little pictures. Oh, do this. This is what it should look like. But in reality, it's just a lie that you're exchanging for truth. With men, honestly, if we're honest, the easiest way is is with the total captivation with pornography in our society. We're changing, we're exchanging, we're taught, and we're teaching young men, we're taught to exchange what relationships should look like with the reality of how God has told us they should be. And if you don't think that there's a problem, then you're just blind and you don't look at anything. And, and I use that one because if, if that's you and that's your struggle, then we're going to be starting a group and we need to know. All right? And there's a number. Text me if you want that because we're going to start a class. Just understanding the effects of that on your mind and your body relationships because so often we have men in our culture that are exchanging this idea for what intimacy is for a lie. We see this, this is what it should look like, and it's nowhere near that, yet we're captivated by it. We're completely over that, and it's something that's hard to break, and it's something that you have to have help in. And it captivated my life forever, and it still does. There's still times where, thankfully, I can text Lindsay when I'm at home and say, hey, I need you to pray for me, and she does. You can't look at this and think, any sort of idolatry in your life that you can overtake by yourself. You can't. Because you're going to rationalize it. You're going to think, oh, well, maybe it won't be completely this. Maybe it'll just be watching certain shows. Well, it's not that bad. But it's leading to the exact same mindset. So what are you willfully exchanging the truth for? Because if you're not willing and I know that's deep, like it's this sense of this heavy, right? But that's the heaviness that leads us to going back and repenting and needing the power of God to pull us out of. If it's not heavy, then we think that we can bear that burden. You can't. 
If, if we could bear the burden, then 16 and 17 of Romans 1 aren't needed because then we could save ourselves. It's not possible. We rebel by changing our affections. But when we rebel, God responds. And that's the last thing that we'll talk about is the response of God. And really, it's not what you would think, honestly. And this goes back to this idea of, with this misguided idea of who God is, right? That, that therefore, you see these, these words in 24, 26, 28. Therefore, for this reason, since they. So, idolatry, therefore, God gave them up. For this reason, God gave them up. And since they did, God gave them up. And we see this idea, that's his response. God gives people over to their sin. That's really not the response you would think, is it? If, if, if we're honest, you're like, okay, God's response to rebellion, because he's a loving God, so he's just gonna love people, right? Because that's what we have so many people in church saying, that God just loves you. He's gonna love you. Not according to Paul here. Paul says, no, therefore he gave you up. He gave them up to their sin. He allows you to be pushed further into it. There's a, a Bible study on this that was written by a church in Britain. We've, we've talked about it a couple times at St. Helen's Church in Bishopsgate. It doesn't make sense to me, but I think Bishopsgate's part of the city. I don't know. It's from Britain. And they say that when humankind rejects God, God rejects humankind. That's really what you see happening here. That, that when humankind rejects God, God gives them up to that. He rejects them. And we look at that, and we're like, wait a second, so what, how, how does that actually benefit those people, right? How, how does that actually benefit? We have to remember that God's wrath is poured out on unrighteousness. And that's what we're talking about in this whole thing. So God gives them up two things that we need to, to know that this is not talking about. This is not God being vindictive or irrational. Like we, we think of anger and wrath and we think of uncontrolled. This is God not being vindictive. This is God not being out of control. We also see that this is God not being passive towards sin. He's not being passive and just allowing this. He's active in this. He gives them up. And when we look at these different categories, we can look at this idea that, that God's response is personal. In 24, it says, Therefore he gave them up in the lust of their hearts. It's, it's this personal this personal giving over. It's this personal, because what's in your heart, what your hearts are given to impurity might be different than mine. So God giving you over to that, giving people over to that, it's, it's personal. It's the lust of their hearts. It's not generic. It's personal. What happens here, he's giving them over that. But we also see that not only is it personal, but it's specific. Look at verse 26. He gave them over to dishonorable passions. Okay, so it was what was in their heart, but it was the dishonorable passions that were involved in that. And then ultimately we see that it's complete and total. If you look at 29 through 31, we get this, that he gave them over to do what ought not to be done. It's a complete list there. It's a complete list there. So we need to look at that list in 29, 30, and 31 and realize that that encompasses every single one of us. It encompasses every single person. What's interesting is that the order that they're put in, and I wanted to go into the details of that, but I figured that would take too long. But just the, the easiest thing to notice when it looks at this idea is to see that in the end of verse 29, they are full of envy and murder are listed next to each other. Right? But in our minds, we would say, well, those aren't the same. Right? We'd say, well, murder's a little worse than envy, right? Envy doesn't really hurt anyone else. But in God's mind, we see that those are sins. Those are expressions of the 
inward rebellion because of being in sin. And so God sees them the same, and he gives people over to that. But really what we need to see in this idea and this response of God is that there's two categories in verses 26 through 32. There's really two categories of that, and they're based off relationships, if you, if you look at it. And, and the first is relationship with God. And, and you might have the wrong version to kind of see this. Um, if you have ESV and NIV, um, it, it says, if, if we read, read verse 26 and 27, God gave them, over, gave them over to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relationships, relations for those that are contrary to nature, and their men likewise gave up natural relations with women who are consumed. If you have NIV, ESV, that says women and men, but in reality, a better view of that, what Paul's saying is male and female. So if you, if you look at it in like the Holloman Christian Standard, some other versions, they actually go back to that and they say male and female. And when we look at that, we understand what's happening in that idea that that's male and female. And when we look at that and we realize that this is the relationship with God, he's talking about sexual sins here, He's talking about the relationship with how he's created us to be. Does that make sense? Like, it's, it's a relationship with us and him. And then the second part's us and other people. But we look at that, and so then what happens, though, if you look in places and churches everywhere, they'll use 26 and 27 to just preach and rail against homosexuality. But what we need to see in that is not that homosexuality is a greater sin. It's just the one that's the clearly opposite of the created order of male and female. He's not saying that's the only dishonorable passion. This is the most obvious opposite of what God has intended for us. But then you could add in there that any dishonorable passion we talk about is showing a difference between how God has created us to be. That's why it's a little confusing when you see Women and men, we think of it just relationship between us. But when we see male and female, we realize that he's talking about us and God. And then we can approach that differently. Then we can have grace for those who struggle with this. Because we realize it's not just this simple act. It's an action that's contrary to the created order that God has given us. And that's what makes it so wrong. And God gives them up to that. And you can see that throughout history. But then we look at the other side of that, and we get to 28 and 31. It's just with others, our relations with other people, right? He saw fit to acknowledge, they, they did not see fit to acknowledge God, and God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And then we see all of that list, everything in there is talking about relationships with other people, Right? What we need to understand about this is, one, the list is not exhaustive. It's not complete. And we see that when we look at verse 30. It says they're haughty, boastful. That's talking about pride, insolent, haughty, boastful. There's pride in that. But then what does he say? They're inventors of evil. So if we have people that are inventors of evil, this list clearly is not complete if other evils can be invented. But what he's talking about there is this idea that, that God's response, he gives them over and that affects our relationship with him and how we sin. It also reflects our relationship with other people because we're completely captivated by our rebellion and our sin that it affects every relationship, ours with other people, with each other, and ours with God. There's this total giving in, this complete unrighteousness, if you will. 
And then he goes further in verse 32. It doesn't stop there. It says that though they know God's righteous degree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they do not. Not only do they do them, they give approval. The first part of 32 is what we need to understand in that, is that those who practice such things deserve to die. So if you're practicing these, the ultimate result is death. And when we see that, it should drive us to repentance and faith, right? When we see people, we should realize that, that the decree of God is that if you're living an act of rebellion, you deserve to die. And we can understand that. If you look at history, right? Rebellions happen. What happens when a rebellion rises up? The king crushes the rebellion, right? Completely destroys it. And so why would we think rebellion with God would be handled any other way? So we naturally assume that if you rebel against something, there's going to be a force come after and knock that down. So why would we think our relationship with God is any different? But if we stopped there, it's really depressing, isn't it? You're like, great. So he gives us over to that, and then it's just miserable, right? Like, if you stop there, you're like, I don't really kind of depress the rest of the day, right? Ruined a good day, right? You're like, man, I was excited, having a good morning, and then all of a sudden it's like, man, just captivated by sin. But what we need to do then is allow this understanding of that to drive us back to the gospel. It drives us back to the gospel because when we look at the gospel, we see that that we haven't got to that revelation. This is, just, this is just what happens in the revelation of the truth based on nature, right? This isn't the gospel revelation. So when we add in the gospel revelation, we get a true picture of who God is because God's not the one that just crushes the rebellion. God's the one that walks out to the rebellion and says, I know that you're doing this, but go ahead and come back inside the wall. Right? He, that's the true picture of who he is. When we go back to the gospel, we realize that it's his power at work for the salvation of those who are unrighteous and they're wicked. And so we get a true picture of who God is. That's why 16, 17, and 18 are such an amazing picture because we see the wrath of God poured out on righteousness, yet God's gospel is that his power is at work for the salvation of those who are unrighteous. That's the true picture. That gives us exciting news so we can go. We see God for who he truly is in the gospel. And then we realize that the gospel then is the only hope in the face of God's wrath. Because who can stand up next to him? It's not necessarily talking about wrath, but the end of Job kind of gives us a picture of us and God, right? When God finally answers and it's not what Job wanted, right? It's not talking about God's wrath, but he's showing the difference in who he is, the power and the might. So think about that, the, the, God answers Job in the midst of all his troubles with showing, here's what all I've done. And that's, he, he was showing him all the positive stuff. Like, where were you when this happened? It's all positive stuff. Now think about the person that does that and then think about the wrath. Right? That's a scary thought. Except when you look at the gospel. We need salvation from God, not from sin. And some people look at that and they're like, that's ridiculous. No, our sin's not the problem. Our sin, the problem is that God's wrath is poured out on that sin. That's what we're saved from. That's what you get when you go to the cross. When you actually look at the cross, you see a true picture of God. Because it wasn't, it, our sin was with Christ, but what, what did he pay? What did he take? He took the wrath of God for us. So our salvation is from that wrath being poured out on us because of our sin, because it was placed on Christ. And that's a better exchange than exchanging the truth for a lie. It's Christ exchanging his 
righteousness for our sin and that we exchange our sin for his righteousness. And so without God's intervention in our life, we're going to suppress the truth. And you see that in culture. You see that in our culture. That the further, and you might have thought this, that we're getting further and further away from a Christian culture. We're just living in suppression of truth that's been revealed on one side within nature and then on the other side the, the church hasn't been evangelizing and have been preaching the gospel to those who are suppressing the truth in a way that's loving and understanding. So but without God's intervention we're going to suppress the truth. Without God's intervention we're going to re- suppress the truth and actively rebel against him. That rebellion's an active thing, right? You can't rebel and not do anything, right? I mean, I hope that's obvious to you. It seems silly that I said that, but it's true, right? You, you, if you're rebelling, it's an action, right? It's not rebel people, all the all rebellious ones unite tomorrow. No, it's today, right? You do it today. It's active. And so if we're suppressing the truth, we're going to be given over to our minds. We're going to, in our wickedness, what? Suppress the truth, which is going to lead us to an active rebellion. And then ultimately, we're going to actively rebel further and further and further as God gives us over to that if we don't ever hear the gospel message and turn back to it. That's what's an amazing picture of what happens here in this first chapter of Romans. And so as we wrap up today, realize that. Realize that that's a pattern that continually happens. That God has been revealed. People suppress the truth and rebel against him. He gives them over to that, but then we can add in the gospel behind that. And so the wrath of God, it's an okay thing to talk about. It's an okay thing to understand because we know that the wrath of God is not the final answer because we have the gospel message that is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes because righteousness is real from faith to faith. That's what Paul says. And so when you think about this and you look at chapters like this, allow yourself to be captivated by the gospel message that you actively were in rebellion against God, yet he sent his son to die for you so that you could be brought in. Because when you have that, you have confidence, you have hope, you have assurance. And then you can turn away from those things because you know that there's something better in Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for allowing us to understand, God, that your wrath, as terrible as it might be, as righteousness And as righteous as it is, God, just that it would be something that drives us to repentance and faith. God, that we would understand our identity and who we are as sons and daughters of you, God. I just pray that that there's someone here that, that hasn't understood that, God, that has been fighting this idea that are living in rebellion, God, that they would hear the gospel message, that there's nothing that they can do to improve their situation, yet believe in your son, Jesus Christ. God, I just pray that your spirit would work in their heart, that you would change their heart so that they might see you. God, I just pray that we continually remind ourselves of the good news that is your son, Jesus Christ, given to us so that we might live. It's in his name we pray, amen.